Hello and welcome to episode 19 of the Church Times podcast. I'm Ed Thornton, Assistant Editor. I'm joined today by Tim Wyatt, Digital Editor, and Madden Davies, Deputy News Editor and newly appointed Features Editor. Coming up on this week's podcast, we talk about the growing discontent among Conservative Evangelicals in the Church of England, who are talking more and more of setting up alternative structures. We also talk about how the Church can engage with artificial intelligence And we have an interview with Natalie Williams, co-author of the new book, A Church for the Poor. If you don't yet subscribe to The Church Times, did you know that you can try five issues of our print and digital editions for just £5? Find out more by visiting www.churchtimes.co.uk slash subscribe. So first, a group of disaffected conservative evangelicals have expressed a wish for an alternative Anglican structure in Britain, and they've revealed that they have been meeting to ensure a faithful ecclesial future. Tim's been following the story closely. What's been going on? So it started with a statement that was issued last week by a a, a large group of quite diverse members of the conservative evangelical community. Some of them were Anglican, some of them already left the Church of England and were from groups such as the Free Church of England or the Anglican Mission in England. And they were basically expressing dismay at what had happened at the General Synod a few weeks earlier, and in particular votes uh, to ban gay conversion therapy and also a request to create a new liturgy for transgender people. And they basically expressed their belief that the Church of England was increasingly walking away from what they saw as orthodox Anglican teaching. And they revealed for the first time that they had been meeting for some time, this this kind of group of conservative evangelicals, to discuss a new future for for them in in the UK, whether that was within the Church of England or outside. And then this letter appeared in Tuesday's Daily Telegraph, where they went a bit further... That's right. It's a slightly different group, a lot of overlap, but there are a few people who signed the Telegraph letter who weren't in the original statement. Um, and the, but this letter went a little bit further, which because it very deliberately referred to the situation in North America, where ultimately conservatives broke away from the Anglican provinces in Canada and in the United States and created this new church, the Anglican Church in North America. And they end with this quote, We look for and pray for a similar renewal of Orthodox Anglicanism and of Anglican structures in these islands. And it's that phrase that has really, many people have interpreted as saying uh, quite explicitly, if if changes aren't made and if the CEV continues on the path that it is, conservative evangelicals will walk away and set up their own independent Anglican church as their um, colleagues and friends did across the Atlantic. I mean, could the Anglican mission in England come into play here or the we've now got the Anglican Church in North America's missionary bishop to the UK? Do you think some of them will be seeking oversight from Andy Lyons? Yeah, it's very possible. So, um, as you say, Andy Lyons is... is Uh, is an attempt to provide alternative oversight for existing Anglican parishes. But Anglican Mission in England is a a slightly different organisation which is attempting to set up Anglican churches that aren't within the C of E. And so obviously there's a huge overlap between a lot of these groups. A lot of them are friends, they meet and talk together anyway. Um, So I think there's every chance that some of the existing structures that we already see, like Amy, maybe with Bishop Lines, could become the the first fruits, um, the seeds of of perhaps a new denomination. Time will tell. So there's also um, a recent letter from the chairman of GAFCON um, which suggested that um, people could take different routes. So if they um, were unhappy about the Church of England, it was a legitimate option to stay within 
or to um, seek sort of alternative oversight. And, and he sort of suggested that people had to sort of search themselves for the correct response for them. So I think Gafcon has suggested that sort of either route um, could be right for different people. And have any of the archbishops or bishops reacted to this, or are they are they keeping fairly quiet and hoping it will blow over? I think it's largely the latter. Since uh, we we did the story, there uh, the Bishop of Norwich, uh, Graham James, who uh, it's not clear whether he was speaking on behalf of the House of Bishops as he does do sometimes, but he 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 wrote a letter to the Telegraph. Uh, rebutting the claims that the General Synod had abandoned Orthodox teaching. Um, He kind of reiterated that classic Anglican triad of scripture, tradition and reason is where we find our authority. Um, And he said uh, in a separate interview with uh, the Times um, that the changes the Synod had made or were proposed were purely around pastoral practice and that no actual teaching was going to change anytime soon. No canons, no doctrines were up for discussion. That was all going to be taking place in the much longer process uh, in that teaching document we've heard so much about. The teaching document which is due to report in another year and a half or so. Perhaps even longer. Perhaps even longer. But it seems many of the Conservatives simply don't believe that, do they? They say it seemed the way the Synod was going, the tone of the debate from their point of view what they saw as the silence of a lot of the bishops, they seem to be saying enough is enough and frankly we don't trust you that things aren't going to change. It looks inevitable. And meanwhile other Conservative evangelicals have been organising. The PCC of St John's Newland in Hull wrote this very strongly worded letter um, after they passed a resolution calling on the Archbishop of York to repent and withholding some of their free will offering. Yeah, so that, that resolution that passed by the PCC um, talks about um, an amendment uh, which failed uh, at the Synod. It was moved by Andrea Williams from Christian Concern. But they were particularly criticising the Archbishop of York's comments he made on that amendment, what uh, uh, he argued against it. And also they, they say they, they're withholding their parish share payment, essentially, um, as a, out of um, dissatisfaction with the sense that the House of Bishops is no longer guiding the church towards what they would see as orthodox Anglicanism and biblical truth. Interestingly, the question of money is one that comes up in another um, organisation uh, in the Diocese of Rochester and Canterbury in Guildford, I believe. There's a number of conservative evangelicals who've been meeting what some people are calling a shadow synod uh, as a group of churches that have been meeting and discussing. Um, and the Reverend Dr. Peter Sandlin, vicar of St. St. Mark's Tunbridge Wells, who's one of the leaders of this, talks about how this Anglican Partnership Synod wanted to uh, set up its own Good Stewards Trust, modelled on something in the Southwark Diocese, which is a mechanism by which conservative evangelical churches continue paying their parish share, but rather than handing it over to the diocese, it is pooled within conservative evangelical churches, and so they would see as a way of ensuring it's spent on things that they approve of. Just worth saying that that Telegraph letter is now on a website where anyone can sign it who agrees with it. And uh, as we speak, it's got over 800 signatures. I think that's significant. I have to say, I have been surprised at how quickly that number has risen. Um, it's worth pointing out it's open to anyone. So the vast majority of them aren't um, bishops or even clergy, just uh, lay members. But it's um, scrolling through the names. You see people from, from across the communion as well, in South Africa, in the United States, in Canada, other places. And, and a significant number of clergy. I also noticed um, the former Bishop of Lewis, the Right Reverend Wallace Ben, mm-hmm. um, who uh, was kind of seen as the last conservative evangelical on the House of Bishops until the appointment of Rod Thomas in the last few years. He has added his name to that now. So, you know, perhaps someone keep an eye on it could become the genesis of something bigger. Next up, 
The Church of England must start considering the implications of artificial intelligence now. So say two bishops who are leading the church's engagement with this rapidly developing technology. Tim has been speaking to them. Tim, why does the church feel the need to get involved in this sort of thing? It's an excellent question, actually, Ed. It's the one that I put to both these bishops. Uh, the Bishop of Oxford, Dr Stephen Croft, he's just joined the House of Lords' Select Committee on Artificial Intelligence, which has launched a call for evidence. And I asked him, you know, what has this got to do with bishops? What has it got to do with the church? And, he, and he, his answer was basically, the science has got to the place that they're now it is dipping into these really significant philosophical and theological questions, primarily about what does it mean to be human? And he says... The faith communities have been talking about this for millennia, not the scientists, and he wanted his voice to be heard. He wanted the church to be wrestling with these issues now, and so that's why he joined joined the committee. He says there's a broader debate about what it means to be human. So he, that's that's theological, isn't it? That needs input from the church. That's right. He, he a lot of things he talked about uh, were about questions of what happens to the nature of employment if there's widespread automation which takes over jobs, or the questions of uh, another bishop I spoke to, uh, Richard Cheatham, the Bishop of Kingston, he said one of the questions he's interested in is, is if, if caring for the elderly, for the disabled, for those with dementia is, is taken over by robots, a process that's already taking place in countries like Japan, what does that mean about what do we think about the frail in our society and what does it mean about to have an absence of human contact? So these are really kind of interesting philosophical questions as well as scientific ones. Yeah, I was recently reading the Taylor Review, which was um, commissioned by the government to look into um, the gig economy and flexible working practices. Um, and it did touch on automation. And um, one of the suggestions was that perhaps as increasingly jobs are automated, uh, we'll need to invest in skills like empathy, um, relationship building and I guess, kind of qualities such as compassion and the suggestion that those are things which um, can't be automated out of existence. Although obviously um, the presence of robot carers in Japan suggests that even those things are under threat from automation. Keith Hebden from the Urban Theology Union in Sheffield wrote for us on this topic um, in back in June. Um, and he, he raised exactly the points that if you have something like a quarter of a million truck drivers could lose their jobs and care workers. And he also made the point about, look at what happened when you had unemployment on a mass scale in the mining communities in the 1980s. It can lead to great social unrest. So we need to be thinking about mm -hmm. this now. And he also raised the point about automated caring, exactly what it does for human touch and that relationship that people have. If you automate everything, um, what, what does that mean for our, our humanity and our relationships? I think there's also that historical link to, um, obviously, the Luddites actually had links to the Methodist Church. And so, in a way, the church has historically been engaged in these questions of technology and automation. And perhaps by getting involved at this early stage, there's a desire to avoid um, some kind of quite physical conflict at some point, and which has sort of materialised in the past. One of the things that really fascinated me and picks up on that, Madeline, is about the idea that the church is actually getting involved in this at a relatively early stage. I mean, a cynic would say quite often the church is being caught on the hop with rapid developments of this kind, and it takes it a lot longer than the rest of society to work out what it thinks about something. So I was quite impressed to see that two different bishops from different walks of life had said, you know what, this is a really critical issue. Polit politicians are just starting to get involved in it. Scientists are starting to really push the boundaries. The church needs to be there at the forefront, at the cutting edge, and not just playing catch-up later on. Bishop Cheatham says this is a significant technological advance with potential both for good or ill. That's why ethics and the theology are so important. I think this is where the church and, of course, other voices have a role 
that scientific advances aren't morally neutral or ethically neutral. Um, and there is wider thinking about what it means to be human, our place in the world. The other thing that's worth saying here is is something the point that Dr. Croft made, Bishop of Oxford, was that this isn't simply a kind of like esoteric, um, very intellectualized argument that's been held by a handful of eggheads in labs. You know, every time you use Google mm. or you try to speak to Siri on your iPhone, you're engaging with real machine learning, with automation, with with technology. Um, and there's been a string. He was he making the point. There's been a string of TV shows like Humans and films like Ex Machina and others, which are really grappling with with this idea of AI and how it will change almost every sphere of human life. You know, he was saying it's important not to lose sight. Um, and get kind of bogged down in the immediate, but say actually the wider culture is engaging with this, the church can't be left behind. Also, interestingly, Dr. Cheatham is quoted in a feature this week um, on messy church and science, um, talking about engaging children from a really young age in questions of faith and science. And that feature acknowledges that there is still this perception that science and faith are in conflict. They don't have anything to do with each other. Um, so quite encouraging that um, the church is starting to engage its sort of youngest members with these questions. One of the things I couldn't include in this story that Dr. Croft told me was that one of the uh, the first conclusions his select committee in the House of Lords had come to was, um, in its first meeting, was that AI needed to be taught to primary schools because some of the ethical questions about how do you control your personal data in a world which everything is, re- is data-driven, you know, these are questions that we need to be preparing people for even before they've got their first phone or they've engaged with the computer by themselves so that by the time they grow up they have the skills to kind of navigate this increasingly complex world. Now it's on to our favourite bits of this week's paper. Which parts have stood out for you, Madeline? So there's a really interesting comment piece by Henry Ratter, who was a former senior manager at ICI, and it's looking at um, a study of how priests' personalities might be linked to church growth. Um, Quite contested, I would imagine, um, but he argues that the CV needs to look at its selection process and ask questions about whether it's attracting the right sort of personalities that will generate growth. Um, so are we actually um, training people who are introverted, risk-averse, unwilling to collaborate? Um, and if so, what sort of consequences does that have for church growth? Um, so expecting a lot of letters about that one. Indeed. Tim? I was uh, really enjoyed reading Gillian Craig's TV column this week in which she tackles uh, the ITV show Love Island, um, something that I've become increasingly aware of having yet never seen it. So I was really interested to see uh, Gillian's take on it included this uh, priceless paragraph. He says, They are isolated from reality, pampered and cared for, and apparently share a series of double beds in a dormitory. In other words, it's pretty much like Cudston. I think that's the first time the ITV press office has had a request for a picture of Love Island (laughs) from the Church Times. I just wanted to flag up our six-page Reformation book special, following on from our Reformation special several weeks ago. I really enjoyed Dave Walker's cartoon this week on children, ways to keep them amused during the summer months. Speaking as someone trying to keep a four and two-year-old amused during these summer months, Dave recommends theme parks, art, the countryside, with the kids saying, are we nearly at the Wi-Fi yet? Travel and ice cream. And a very good one that we've tried is lending out the children to the grandparents. In Britain, 81% of practising Christians have a university degree but the figure for the whole population is just 34%. In A Church for the Poor, Natalie Williams and Martin Charlesworth explore just how middle class the church has become and why this is a problem. 
They argue that, quote, if the poor or working class are uncomfortable in our churches, we don't need to convert them to our middle class ways. We need to move out of our comfort zones and accept them as they are. I spoke to Natalie, who works for the charity Jubilee Plus, to find out what this might look like. Um, I just want to kick off with, um, you write that uh, becoming a Christian turned you from your working class background into a middle class person. How, how did that process take place and, and why do you think, is that a bad thing? Um, well, I think when I came into the church, I didn't really have great aspirations for my future. Um, I knew what I wanted to kind of do for a living, but I was with a group of friends who weren't particularly talking about university. No one else in my family had gone to university. And when I became a Christian, my group of friends changed, not exclusively to Christians by any means, but just to a different group of people with different hopes and different aspirations and then suddenly everyone was talking about going to university as if it was completely normal so it became normal for me at the age of 15 to start thinking about university so that's one way in which I think things changed for me when I became a Christian I think another is I just got used to different ways of behaving you know um, we write in the book about going to dinner at people's houses that wasn't really something I'd done before I became a Christian Um, going to parties where you were expected to turn up with a bottle um, of something. That wasn't really something I was used to at all. And so I think there were just a number of ways in which some subtle and some really obvious in which my behaviour began to change. Um, that said, since I've been talking about the book in lots of settings, I've been really challenged on whether I should call myself middle class or not, because actually, essentially, I still feel like I'm working class. It's just the only reason I would now say I'm middle class is partly because I think people would look at Uh, The fact that I own my own home, the fact that I've got um, a master's degree and things like that and say, oh, you're not working class. But actually, I very much feel at my heart that I am working class still. Mm, I guess that suggests that class is largely a a culture, something that is internal rather than simply reflected to your circumstances. Yeah, I think it is. Absolutely. And I think that's why we find that so many more people identify still as working class, even though maybe some of those external indicators would suggest that they're not. Uh, That's one of the things we look at in the book is still the fact that almost two thirds of the population of this country would refer to themselves or identify as working class, which is really high statistic if you think about actually the reality of people's day to day lives. And I don't um, it's necessarily a bad thing to change from one class to another. I think in the book, what we reflect on is, is it a bad thing if we try to get people to conform to certain behaviours that have much more to do with our class than they do to do with the Bible. So that's why I think it can be an issue. I think some of the things that we expect people to be able to do, um, even sitting down listening to a 40 minute sermon on a Sunday, well, there aren't that many other environments where people in their everyday lives are sitting down listening to someone talk for 30 or 40 minutes. And if people don't have the um, patience for that or just don't enjoy that, we can sometimes see that as not being spiritual enough, whereas actually it might just be what they're used to and what they're familiar with. There's nothing in the Bible that says a sermon has to be 30 to 40 minutes long. One stat is that 81% of practising Christians have a university degree in the UK. What kind of impact do you think? You mentioned one thing, you know, there's a focus on kind of lengthy explorative preaching. What else kind of impact do you think that might have on, on how we do church? Well, I think if everyone in your church or the vast majority of people in your church have university degrees, firstly, I think that's quite alienating for those who don't. I think 
there are many ways in church life where we can make people feel that they're not included or they're on the fringe or they don't have the same life experiences. So I think I think that's a key thing. But I think also, um, you know, the other statistic is that only 27 percent of people in the country have a university degree. So it says something about the demographics we're appealing to as churches and how we're missing huge numbers from among our communities. And obviously that's not just because they have or haven't got a university degree. There'll be other factors as well. But I think that statistic in particular really struck us as, wow, the church really is very different to the communities around us. And surely that's a bit of a problem if we're trying to reach out to the communities around us. Some people, you sometimes hear people say working class people do God. They're very spiritual, but they just don't really do church. Would that be true in your experience? Well, I think that's true to a certain extent. Yeah, I mean, I think there'll be a variety of experiences among different class groups. But I think um, for sure, you know, a lot of my working class friends and family, actually even so my mum would say she's a Christian, but she never goes to church and doesn't really understand why church is all that important. And I think... It is some of our institutions, some of our traditions that exclude people. It's, it's not our God who excludes people. It's some of the structures that we've put in place. You talk some elsewhere in the book about how um, things, the middle class people might see working class people as quite abrupt. And then working class people might see middle class people as kind of duplicitous or two-faced and, the, and just in the way that they speak and the way that they talk to each other. Do, do you think that there is kind of these deep barriers gulfs between the different classes and that we can't that it's going to be really hard just to get along and do church together across these barriers i think my answer to the first part of your question is yes i do think there are huge gulfs and barriers but to the second part of your question no i don't think that means it has to be difficult for us to do church together i think the church in the bible you know is called the manifold wisdom of god it is about bringing together people of all different types. Jesus breaks down every division, but that he doesn't destroy diversity. In fact, the church is supposed to be diverse. So while there might be divisions, Jesus um, completely overcomes them. I think some of the issue for us is that sometimes in our churches, we're just not that used to spending time with people who are a bit different from us. And because we find that hard, all of us, of whatever class you're from, what, you know, all different backgrounds, we find it hard to mix with people where we don't have an immediate point of reference. But actually in the church, Jesus is our immediate point of reference. So I think it might mean we need to work a bit harder to overcome some of these divisions. But I think that's exactly what church is supposed to be, is people who would never mix under normal circumstances, coming together and being really strong friends, having strong community, strong relationship with each other. I think that's the vision of the church that we're presented with in the Bible. Often some of the things that the, the church is most proud of, uh, things that it does for the poor, things like food banks or homeless shelters, other kind of outreach like that. Do you think there's a danger that because so much of the church's social action, is its ministry is directed at doing things for the poor that actually makes it harder to bring poor people into church i'm not sure if that's what makes it harder to bring poor people into church but there definitely is a disconnect between the people that we're helping through things like food banks and night shelters and then the people we're seeing in our kind of sunday meetings and midweek meetings there's definitely um not an easy bridge from one to the other and part of that could be it's very easy for us. I know this in my own heart to feel superior, to feel like I'm doing something to the poor rather than saying, do you know what? This is my um, friend, Steve. He's homeless. You know, this is my uh, friend, someone else who actually 
struggles and needs the food bank it's it's actually looking at our friendship groups and saying am i actually friends with people who are different to me or are all my friends almost exactly the same as me and we're nice comfortable um getting along together and then anything else we do is just about making ourselves feel good and also obviously a genuine desire to help people but with a bit of a looking down on people so actually my friend steve who is homeless i remember the first time i met him i sat down next to him on the street and one of his comments was that he's so used to people looking down on him because he's sitting down on the pavement. And obviously that means everyone else is standing up beside him. But to actually have someone just sit down next to him and have eye to eye contact for him was a huge deal. And I think that's a great um, metaphor, or a great picture for us of just are we making sure that, you know, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, as well as physically, we are seeing people eye to eye rather than any sense of superiority and inferiority. Hmm. You spoke earlier about how, you know, the vision, God's vision for the church is it to be uh, representative of every sphere of society, every gender, class, age, background. Given that the church is currently not, what do you think we're missing? What do you think, uh, what can middle class Christians, uh, the bulk of Christians in the UK, what could they learn? What we're we missing out on from our working class brothers and sisters? Oh, I think we're probably missing out on huge amounts because I think different people's experiences always inform us there's always things we can learn from other people and if every single person is made in the image of god which is christians we believe then that means that every single person bears the mark of their maker so that means i can learn something from every single person on, on the planet there's something of the revelation of god in every single person that is different and unique and, and specific and so i think that when we miss huge groups of people whole groups of people from church community we are missing out on aspects of god's character on revelation of who he is on just thinking differently and i think it's interesting because i think most of our churches in this country are so middle class i think this is stuff that we're not even necessarily really thinking about and it's it's accidental it's inadvertent that we're excluding groups of people and some of the traditions that we've formed can go on completely unchallenged with us just almost sliding them into a biblical narrative simply because we, no one's around who says, hey, why did you do it that way? Or how did it come about that this has become the way you do things? Or why do you say that? Or why do you say this? And I find that whenever I spend time with people who think differently to me, whether it's people of different faith or different cultures or different backgrounds, it always challenges the way I think in a really healthy way and helps me to really think, am I being biblical or am I just in a habit that has become a tradition for me? One of the ways that you suggest that <clears throat> churches and Christians can start to uh, break down this barrier and 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 uh, make the church more working class or more diverse would be to to take the brave step of maybe moving on to a rougher housing estate or putting your kids in a bad school to 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 kind of get alongside people like you said on the same level as people rather than just seeing as them just people to help. Do you think there are enough Christians brave enough to do something, quote unquote, risky, like taking your comfortable life and moving on to a housing estate or putting your kids in a school that's not quite as good as the one on the outside of town or whatever? I think there's an increasing number of Christians who are um, feeling that how comfortable our Christianity is doesn't really reflect anything that we see in the Bible. And I think that we're on a journey. I'm on a journey. I think we all are of looking at mm, how much. In a country like ours, how much of our are we shaped by our culture? How much is, of kind of Christianity and British culture almost becomes synonymous for some people 
in a way that means we've been able to be very, very comfortable. And I think as we're doing more and more and more to help people in need, help people in crisis, more and more of us are feeling this provocation, this challenge to how does my life reflect what I actually believe? How am I actually, you know, mixing with um, different people? And so even for me, you know, I uh, bought my first home about eight months ago and I've intentionally bought it in one of the rougher parts of town um, because I want to be around some of the people who are struggling and in need. And I don't think that's something that everyone needs to do. But I think it, there is a challenge for all of us as Christians. How are we mixing with the people that Jesus would have mixed with? How are we reaching out to people beyond our comfort? How are we even, you know, I'd go as far to say, are you sacrificing your comfort for the good of others? Because I think as Christians, that's something we're very much called to do. Hmm. Uh, in the Church of England, I don't know if you know, but there's this, there's this current program uh, called Renewal and Reform, and part of that is um, investing extra money into more mission and outreach and ministry, directly looking at trying to bring new people into church. Um, and one of the criticisms of that, a lot of this money is going down a, a kind of quote-unquote middle-class forms of ministry. So it's about church planting and the HDB model, alpha courses. Do you think there is a, a risk that churches spend their money simply uh, duplicating what we've already got and what works. Alpha course seems to work, but it only brings a certain type of person to faith. Yeah, I think we need to be looking at different ways. I mean, it's interesting. One of the things I mentioned in the book is we ran um, a cap budgeting and money course, um, which we wanted to reach people in the town. Hastings, where I live, has a real problem with people in overwhelming debt. So we really wanted to run it for people outside the church. People outside the church who came would typically only come to the first session and then wouldn't come back. And it's only a three week course. So to most of us in our nice middle class churches, we're like, wow, three weeks. That's easy, easily doable. But we started to think, well, why aren't we holding people? Why aren't they staying for the whole course when they're coming on the first week and expressing quite desperate need to get on top of their finances? And we realized that, you know, after three courses, maybe holding it at 7.30 p.m. on a weekday evening just isn't the sort of time that people who aren't middle class go out and are used to doing things in the evening. And I think that's true of alpha courses as well. You know, so often we run them at a time that suits middle class people and nice middle class Christianity. And so I think there is this need for us to think. The problem is if we don't know people who are different to us, then it's very difficult to have an understanding of what works for them and what doesn't. So extending our friendship group, extending our community to make sure that we are talking to people and getting their perspective. Because it's easy for me to sit and say, well, maybe if I held a course at a different time or maybe if I did this differently, it would appeal to that group of people. But if I don't know anyone in that group of people, really, I'm just stabbing in the dark. And so it really, really is about getting to know people and asking them, tell me honestly, what's, what's horrible about church for you? What do you love about it? What could we do differently? How, why, why won't your friends come? What would make them come? And then le really learn from the people we're trying to reach rather than just thinking that we know how to reach them. You mentioned earlier that you that you think increasing number of people are doing what you're doing, kind of taking an audit of their life and their church and thinking about how is it excluding people from working class backgrounds, moving into poorer parts of town. Do you, are you optimistic for the future? Do you think the church has, has learned this lesson and is, is, is grappling with it? Or do you think... Um, there's every chance in 100 years time the church will be just as middle class as it is today no i i am optimistic about it i don't know that we've quite learned our lesson in this regard but i'm optimistic because i know that god 
um, has always especially cared about the poor. And I think what we've seen in the last eight to ten years in this country is a revival of care for the poor in our churches. As um, austerity hit, as the recession hit, churches stepped up. We've risen to the challenge. That's why there are now hundreds of food banks and night shelters and soup kitchens and debt advice centres and uh, projects that help expectant mums and all sorts of things going on across this country. And I think Christians are at the forefront of helping those facing crisis and facing those in need. I think as we do that, God shapes our hearts um, so often we feel like we're doing it for other people, but I find that basically what God does in me seems to far exceed any help I give to anyone else. And I think that God is committed to the poor and therefore he will speak to his church. He will call us increasingly to get our hands dirty and to you know, put our money where our mouth is, so to speak, and to share his heart. So I'm hugely optimistic because my faith in God a lot more than my faith in myself or people or the church, to be honest. Um, yeah, so if people want to find out more about how to um, have a church for the poor, how to build a church for the poor, then um, Jubilee Plus, who I work for, is running a conference on the 28th of October in Cambridge this year. Booking is now open at our website, which is jubilee-plus.org. And yeah, people are very welcome to come along to that and find out more. That's it for this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find lots more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, www.churchtimes.co.uk. If you're not yet a subscriber, why not take a look at our latest introductory offer, one month of our digital package and five issues of the paper for just £5. Go to www.churchtimes.co.uk slash subscribe. The music, as always, was by Sort After Sounds. Don't forget to tune in next Friday for our next episode. And thanks for listening.